Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Beth Corey. Lucia and I discuss with Beth the concept of deliberative pedagogies and using deliberative pedagogy as a framework for creating democratic spaces. Beth, I'd like you to talk more about the frameworks that you use, especially deliberative pedagogies and deliberative forums. So I'll talk a little bit about deliberative pedagogy because that's actually kind of um, new for me and new for YTI. We're still kind of uh, tinkering with it, mm -hmm. but it was something that um, that I stumbled upon. I mean, it's been around for a while, so I'm not claiming anything um, revolutionary, but I stumbled upon it um, this past summer when I was trying to go deeper into the civic renewal literature and uh, the sort of um, democratic... Um, you know, these, these efforts and kind of repairing our democratic fabric here in the United States, which is, you know, started um, in the early 2000s, but is, you know, even more imperative now. Deliberative pedagogy um, is something that's being used in K through 12 as well as, well as higher education um, to kind of um, teach these skills of weighing um, the costs and the benefits of making real decisions as a community about policy and um, to move past debate. So much of what our conversations in the public sphere right now are structured around is a two-sided debate, right? Either you're for the wall or you're for amnesty. Either you are, you know, for socialism or you are for free markets or whatever. Um, and obviously that doesn't, that doesn't get us anywhere because people immediately have already decided what side they're on. And so they're not thinking about policy. So um, there are organizations like the Kettering Foundation and the National um, Issues Forum that are creating like specific documents where you can actually talk about something like immigration, mm -hmm. not in a debate of one side versus another side, but considering three or maybe four really specific options that have real costs and drawbacks as well as benefits and framing them in ways so that if a group of people got together, they would have to seriously consider, well, if we did it this way, what would we have to give up? You know, what would it cost us financially? What would be some costs in our civil liberties? Um, what might, you know, but what would we gain, right? So what I'm trying to do, which I'm very much still tinkering um, in, is how can we use the benefits of that pedagogy, which sort of teaches you to appreciate people who disagree with you in more complex ways, mm -hmm. teaches you how to deliberate over an issue rather than debate an issue, to critically and critically consider your own position and take seriously that there are costs as well as benefits to a position that you might hold. How do you take all that and actually try to do that around theology? Yeah, and you give that great example 
of uh, the First United Methodist Church in Omaha, oh, Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. The confirmation class. Yeah. So um, at the same time I was learning about deliberative pedagogy was right at the time when uh, the United Methodist Church had its called general conference in which um, we decided, I'm United Methodist, so I'm implicated in this. We decided to um, to double down on some very anti-LGBT policies, and um, which had the interesting effect of igniting a backlash. And um, in a very specific way, this particular congregation, um, a group of young people who were going through confirmation at the same time decided collectively on great after great deliberation to not be confirmed in the United Methodist Church um, because they did not feel that they could become members of a church that um, was causing such great harm to LGBTQIA folks. And so I use that in my book as this um, opening vignette because for a number of reasons one is they decided to take a public stand but two they went through a several week process before deciding to do that and that their confirmation leader very much encouraged them to weigh the pros and cons of making this decision um, if you don't become confirmed you can't become a member which means you can't vote um, which means you can't become a lay delegate which means that you know you can't be part of the process of maybe reversing that decision um, and the young people I actually you know tracked down the the pastor of that church and was able to get him on the phone and have him tell me about kind of what went down with that and he said it was very much a student-led a youth-led thing I mean again and if you go back to the way it gets framed in the media the way the trolling works people said oh those kids are just pawns of this congregation mm -hmm. they're just following you know their lemmings kind of argument no this was a couple of young women within the group who felt very strongly that they just couldn't in good conscience become confirmed and then the pastor and the confirmation leader said well that's great um that's fine what do you all else think about this and the rest of the youth really struggled with whether or not they wanted to do it but in the end they decided to that it was more powerful to make a collective stand mm -hmm. so they wrote a public statement and on the sunday in which they were supposed to be confirmed they got up and read this public statement as a group but the important thing about it is that they had deliberated to get there they weren't pushed by just those two girls they weren't pushed by the confirmation leader they weren't discouraged by the pastor or the confirmation leader this is a particular congregation that is progressive and so they gave a standing ovation to these young people it's not something that they suffered a great um consequence from within their congregation but again they were trolled mm -hmm. publicly and um got a lot of pushback as a congregation but i think you know they did sacrifice their ability to make decisions in their church okay yeah i um am thinking about the way that that those moments of deliberation have unfolded at YTI um, 
And what you keep underlining, which is that any kind of change making, any kind of um, any kind of political action on the part of youth or on the part of those who are um, midwifing young people into their into their full empowered selves. It has a lot of challenges attached to it and um, often foments quite a lot of conflict. And I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on what um, what conflict has looked like at YTI and how um, you and the staff and the scholars who come to YTI approach those moments of real struggle within the community. Yeah. Um... My next book will probably have to be just like a deep, deep dive into understanding the mechanics of conflict in an intentional learning community. Um, I mean, one thing is anyone who's lived in an intentional community or even for that matter, gone on a group trip for any length of time knows that there'll be a moment usually sort of dead in the middle in which there's going to be some kind of conflict. In fact, I could uh, pretty much predict the day in which some kind of conflict would happen during YTI. What mm -hmm. I couldn't predict was what it would be. But I, as my educated guess was that it would have something to do with race or something to do with gender mm -hmm. or both. And, um, and, it, and, and around that could also include class. But so um, a lot of conflict that would happen at YTI would come amongst and between the staff around how, how to mentor young people or how to approach an issue that some of the students were having. So that staff might disagree about how to approach something. And some of that would come out of their own experiences of, um, of discipline, um, their own experience, you know, how their level of comfort with, um, uh, you know, with sort of letting, letting young people kind of not receive consequences in the ways mm. that they often receive consequences in their own upbringing. Um, but some of it also came from, from staff legitimately not seeing the situation in the same way because they would see the racial dynamics differently. I mean, or they would see different facets to it and kind of plant their stake in a different way. So for instance, because our, our community would have, um, you know, African-American students who ranged from um who were diverse within themselves in terms of class for instance um or you know some might come from the caribbean or you know come from other backgrounds that there's within the african-american community their own uh differences around class and colorism things like that but then you also have um an immigrant community within yti um, and so, for instance, I can think of a, of a really significant conflict in which some staff were sort of thinking about the international students and the way in which they were outside of or entering into our, our race conversation in a different way, whereas other students or other staff people were sort of seeing it and identifying really strongly with the way some of the African-American students were experiencing the situation. And then there would be others who would identify with the way some of the working class white students were experiencing the conversation. And sort of in my perspective, every one of those staff people had really good faith reasons for why they were sort of planting their 
passions in a particular way that they were sort of, and it usually, you know, mirrored their own social location. So, you know, really sticking up for the working class white kid because they didn't have a way to enter or they felt they didn't have a way of entering the race conversation without taking uh, taking stock of class. Um, others entering, you know, where do the international students? So, so it gets really messy. And to be honest, and Lucia knows, like they don't get resolved necessarily. Um, mm. One of the things about YTI is it's a limited experience. It comes to an end. Um, and so things blow up. Um, Usually we, um, there, there are, um, sometimes they get resolved enough where, you know, particular interpersonal conflicts, you know, there's reconciliation. Um, sometimes very much so it's about me, uh, recognizing where I have failed and apologizing to the appropriate people to say, oh, you know, I really messed up on this one. Um, hoping also by doing that, that I'm modeling for other staff people ways in which they might also, um, take on responsibility for how they've contributed to a conflict if appropriate. Um, Sometimes we've had to have staff meetings where we just kind of hash it out or at least try to hash it out. Um, but sometimes there's also just a sense of, you know what, we've got a week left and we're just going to suck it up and uh, focus on the young people instead of fighting with each other um, and keep going. And sometimes there's reconciliation a year later. Um, sometimes uh, certain people who had conflicts with each other figure out ways of working out later. And sometimes there's wounds that are still there years later. I mean, it, it's messy. And part of what really puts pressure in that particular context is um, we don't have time to necessarily move through the entire process of coming to reconciliation because we've got to stop that staff meeting and go out and hang out with the young people. Hmm. You know, and the yeah. next event is about to happen. The next thing is about to happen. And so um, things get left undone sometimes. Um, sometimes, though, I have certainly seen staff reflect back and say, I overreacted or I can see now this other side or, um, uh, you know, or they found a way to apologize and to actually um, uh, restore and repair some of those relationships. I have gone back and taken specific people out for coffee mm -hmm. and um, apologized and tried to repair. Um, but it's also recognizing that um, we bring all of these ugly things into the space with us, right? We bring yeah. racism into the space. We bring sexism into the space. We bring homophobia into the space, classism, ableism, all of these things. And, um, you know, all of us are participating in it and it's a hard lesson. And I always have to remind myself, my staff are learners too. I'm a learner mm -hmm. too. Uh, none of us, you know, I, I've often dreamed of, you know, if me and the staff could all like live together ourselves for two weeks, just us, so we could kind of mm -hmm. duke some things out first and yeah. then invite the young people in that maybe we could, you know, uh, do it. But then I think, you know, that's just not the way it works because we could get one thing resolved and then something else would happen. And you just, it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah. So you're talking about a really messy process. Yeah in a messy institution. 
yes. of, uh, in terms of YTI, uh, Emory University. Mm -hmm. uh, that's got its own systemic his history of oppressions and uh, ongoing yeah. uh, in terms of lack of living wage and, and things like that. Absolutely. Um, and race. So how, what are the connections that you've seen happen between YTI and the institutional higher education monolith? Um, I wish I could say there was more than there is. Um, one of our challenges, of course, we're a summer program. So um, we don't have a lot, and you know, the, the theology school within Emory um, is, you know, sort of its own thing. And then um, YTI is then its own own thing that's a little bit separate from the theology school. But I think um, there, there are certain ways that we connect. I mean, one of the things is, you know, because we're a program on that campus, we are, for instance, using the uh, food services, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and we have housekeepers that are coming into our dorm space and cleaning. And we do try to um, build relationships with the people that are coming into the residence halls to clean and mm -hmm. to repair things. Um, we try to talk to the participants about, um, about uh, really, uh, treating with respect and thinking about what the food service industry in mm -hmm. on campus is like and what where you know what it means for them to be interacting with these food service people um yeah i mean we have some of these conversations we talk about the um the the environmental impact of mm. our program you know when we were composting and recycling um and the challenges of doing that um so we try to talk about these these various things about um uh the ability or inability of Emory of being able to have undocumented students become part of its, uh, you know, I mean, we have un undocumented students come to YTI. Um, and so, you know, talking with them about whether and how they can become students at, at Emory or, um, you know, talking with them about higher education. I mean, a lot of our students that come to YTI, um, yes, they see Emory as this huge, rich institution, which it is, um, but also the opportunities for scholarship, financial support that might come from that, that mm -hmm. actually might be better than some of the institutions they were thinking of. And so mm -hmm. getting them to think about whether or not um, a school like Emory could be for them, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but I think it's 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 a it's a, it's a challenge because um, you make compromises to run a program like this mm -hmm. for efficiency, right? And so um, would I rather have all of our catering come from locally sourced places mm -hmm. and from people who are given a living wage? Yes. Um, do we have the ability to have catered food? Where would we store it? Mm -hmm. We have all these leftovers. Uh, how do you manage the leftover food? Um, we've never had dorm space that had the right kind of balance of places to store food with places mm -hmm. to eat food, right? Yeah. So you get to these nitty gritty things mm -hmm. of, of that. Um, so you end up using the food service on campus more than you would like because at the end of the day, it's still cheaper than the catering mm -hmm. or, um, and so, and you've got, you're dealing with donated money and you have to be a good steward of that. So you're always caught up in all of that. I, I, we talk about, 
um, when I talk to them about structural oppression and the ways in which we're part of systems that do harm on our behalf, I talk about the YTI van mm. and how we use this 12 passenger van that gets eight mm. miles to the gallon <laughs> so that we can drive them to some neighborhood and talk about environmental racism, you know, yeah. like the ironies of driving <laughs> around in a van you know, are the ironies of bringing someone in from California or from Palestine or from Germany to come to YTI and the carbon yeah. footprint of that, right? Mm -hmm. But we weigh that over against the incredible transformation of being able to have an international community at yeah. YTI, right? So we talk about these things the, that we're caught in this. But, you know, I think... Um, and I think the staff probably do this more than I do. And, you know, there's a lot of lots of conversations that happen on the halls at night that I'm not privy to. Mm -hmm. But because the staff are largely Emory students, I think they can start talking about their experiences of racism on campus or their experiences of, um, you know, the food service and the living wage movement mm -hmm. on campus. And, um, and so we do start to talk about that. And also with an idea of... Um, you're going to become part of some sort of institution, whether it's a college, whatever college it is, or whether it's a, a, you know, a place of um, work or it's the military. These are typically the different routes that our students take or church. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be complicated structures. Yeah. And so let's look at Emory's complicated mm -hmm. structures. Emory has been kind to us. It's given, you know, our ability to have this program. Our, I mean, for the longest time, our program was funded by the Lilly Endowment, right? And yeah, so, you know, foundations <laughs> are complicated. Mm -hmm. Foundations make possible amazing things. Um, we were able to do things at YTI because we had, because money was no object. Mm -hmm. And so you could experiment in ways that you couldn't if you had to start small and scale up. Yeah. But the cost of that, the impact of that is... Um, you know, you're part of a system that includes, you know, the stock market and that includes um, m money in part that came from manufacturing pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm noticing the time um, and I'm trying to think of a good wrap up question. This is also rich. Um, I guess I'm wondering, Beth, what your vision is for mm -hmm. the next phase of a program like YTI. What do you, what do, what seeds are you hoping it will plant in the next, in the next, in the coming years? Um, what's your vision? Uh, yeah, I know that's a big question, but yeah. I would like to hear your answer. Um, I have another one to tag onto that. I don't know yeah. if you have time, but your vision of youth ministry education in the future. I guess it, it kind of, yeah, they're kind of both. I mean, that's a better version of my question. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, so I can take, I cast a vision for youth ministry. I'm tinkering with a couple of things. One is what would it mean for us to think about a congregational youth pastor as a community organizer hmm. and the principles of community organizing grassroots, broad-based organizing, um, can a youth pastor actually use some of those things? Can a pastor use those things? Um, so that, that's the broad vision. What if we actually conceived of youth ministry as, um, as broad-based grassroots community organizing, where we're empowering mm -hmm. 
the community, the constituency, which is the young people, um, to do whatever it is that they've identified as their issues that they want to work on, right, instead of your agenda. Um, uh, a small step towards that is for YTI is moving towards having a change in our program in which we want to have young people come for a couple of weeks um, in the summer, but then work on a project back in their communities at home over the year and then come back the following summer so that they can teach a new cohort what they've learned, right? And so if we can really get that going, and there's a lot of logistical stumbling blocks to that, but where we can equip young people to be able to go home and we can support them as they are trying to make change in their churches or their schools or their home communities. Um, that would be my vision for YTI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Beth, for coming in and talking to us today and being on the podcast. We are really excited about this book and about the ripple effects that surely are gonna continue to come out of um, your amazing work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot that those of us who teach in colleges and universities can learn from the work of, that you're doing with um, 17 and 18 year olds who yep. are just about to be with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for including me. It's been great fun. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. You've just been listening to an interview with Beth Corey of the Candler School of Theology and the Youth Theological Initiative, Lucia Holsether of Skidmore College, and I, Tina Pippen of Agnes Scott College, are your co-hosts. China Wilson is our producer. Aaliyah Harris is our awesome audio engineer. We'd like to thank our musicians, Lance Eric Hagen, along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins for our title music and interstitial music. And Paul Myrie and Mike Shelton, I want to thank for the end song, Waiting for Winter, available for download on Bandcamp.